Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, welcome. We have a very special episode for you today, as we'll be doing an introduction to the reaction patterns to diagnosis, and then end with a special guest interview that I think you'll thoroughly enjoy. So let's face it, diagnosing rashes is really hard. It is a big challenge for many providers outside of dermatology, and many rashes can even stump the best dermatologists out there. But why is this? First off, there are hundreds to thousands of dermatologic conditions in the literature. And why is that? Since they appear on the outside of the body rather than internally, they are easy access for a biopsy, which means that we have pathology on the thousands of conditions that we have to know as dermatologists. So number one, there are a lot of rashes and lesions to know. But what else makes diagnosing rashes difficult? Different rashes can look exactly the same clinically, but have an entirely different cause. This probably gives the biggest challenge for us as dermatology providers. There are a few unique rashes out there that are one of a kind, but otherwise you can get away with calling a rash something completely incorrect because so many rashes can look exactly the same. So what do you do? Throw your hands up and ask your superiors? Nope. You learn an approach to rashes and turn it into somewhat of an algorithm in your mind, the same way that other specialties like emergency medicine develop diagnostic algorithms. In my residency here in Jacksonville, we are taught the reaction patterns to diagnosis based off a paper written by Dr. Charles Gropper which is titled, An Approach to Clinical Dermatologic Diagnosis Based on Morphologic Reaction Patterns. My program director, Dr. Krishnamurthy, learned this approach from Dr. Gropper during his residency at St. Barnabas in New York. He has taught it to us in our current residency, and I'm passing it along to you in this podcast. In his paper, Dr. Gropper describes five reaction patterns, which he defines as a group of derm conditions that look alike. These five reaction patterns give a framework for developing a differential diagnosis, and they are a great place to start when it comes to learning rashes and lesions. I have found this reaction pattern so helpful that I'm going to base the first several seasons of this podcast off of the reaction patterns and go through them one by one. I highly suggest that you read Dr. Gropper's paper, which was published in the February 2001 issue of the journal Clinical Cornerstone. And remember, the paper is titled, An Approach to Clinical Dermatologic Diagnosis Based on Morphologic Reaction Patterns. Reading this paper will not only be helpful for learning its content, but also for following along with our podcast. So in today's episode, I will quickly run through these five reaction patterns, discuss the basic entities in each group, and then we will finish with an interview with the man himself, Dr. Gropper, and discuss how these reaction patterns can be used in real life. Before we dive in, let's start with our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. Dr. Gropper describes five reaction patterns in his paper. One, papulosquamous, which includes the red and scaly rashes such as psoriasis. Two, eczematous, such as atopic dermatitis, which can take on an acute, subacute, or chronic forms. 3. Vascular, which are diffuse red rashes with minimal scale, such as viral exanthems. And then 4. Dermal, which are deeper processes in the dermis, such as granuloma annulari, that create minimal, if any, surface change. And lastly, 5. The vesico-bullous disorders, which have blisters. I will very quickly describe the entities in each of these five reaction patterns before we get to our exclusive interview with Dr. Gropper. Don't worry too much about memorizing these groups now, as I'll review them at the beginning of every single episode in order to hammer them home. So let's start with the first reaction pattern, the papulosquamous disorders. 
Papulosquamous disorders describe rashes that are red and scaly. Dr. Gropper breaks down the papulosquamous rashes into five subcategories. One, psoriasiform, which includes psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, mycosis fungoides, and small and large plaque parasoriasis. Two, pityriasiform, which includes pityriasis rosea, secondary syphilis, and tinea versicolor. Three, lichenoid, which includes lichen planus and its many variants, including drug-induced forms. Four, annular, including tinea infections. And five, erythroderma. The second reaction pattern includes the eczematous disorders, which are red and itchy rashes with less scale than the papulosquamous disorders. These eczematous disorders can all take on an acute, subacute, or chronic appearance. Acute eczematous reactions such as allergic contact dermatitis to poison ivy typically occur within hours or days and present as very inflamed lesions that weep fluid and can have vesicles and bulla. Subacute eczema occurs after those acute lesions crust over and will start to display scale and crust. An example of subacute eczema might be stasis dermatitis. And then lastly, we have chronic eczematous conditions that typically last months to many years. These chronic eczematous conditions classically show lichenification, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, and more scale than what is seen in subacute eczema. Atopic dermatitis is a classic chronic eczematous condition. So that covers your first two reaction patterns, papulosquamous and eczematous disorders. Let's power through the next reaction pattern, the vascular disorders. Again, the vascular reaction pattern refers to red lesions produced by the cutaneous vasculature. There are many disorders in this group, which I slightly rearranged from Dr. Gropper's organization in his paper, and we'll put them into eight groups or individual entities, which include 1. Erythema multiforme, 2. The toxic erythema group, which includes viral exanthems, drug eruptions including Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis, or scarlatiniform eruptions including scarlet fever, staph-scalded skin, toxic shock syndrome, and Kawasaki disease. The third vascular group is the figurate or gyrate erythema group, which includes erythema annularis centrifugum, erythema gyratum repens, erythema migrans, and erythema marginatum. Four, we have urticaria, commonly known as hives or wheels, and then here's where I deviate from Dr. Gropper's organization a bit. In his paper, his final grouping includes purpura, which he breaks into palpable purpura, including the different forms of vasculitis, and then non-palpable purpura, including the benign pigmented purpura disorders. For the sake of organizing our podcast episodes, I'm going to break these into our last four vascular groups. 5. Vasculitis, which refers to inflammation of the blood vessel wall. 6. Vasculopathy, which refers to vascular damage in the absence of vasculitis. 7. Retiform purpura, which take on a dusky stellate pattern. And 8. Vascular growths, including neoplasms and vascular malformations. Alright, so that covers papulosquamous, eczematous, and vascular disorders. Our fourth reaction pattern will be the dermal disorders. These are further broken down based on the type of inflammatory cells present or as depositional disorders such as amyloidosis, calcium deposits as in calcinosis cutis, urate deposits as in gout, mucin deposits as in myxedema, and lipid deposits as seen in xanthelasma. The dermal subcategories based on the inflammatory cells present include histiocytic, lymphocytic, neutrophilic, eosinophilic, and mast cell disorders. So let's go over these real quick. Dermal histiocytic granulomatous disorders include sarcoidosis, granuloma annulari, necrobiosis lipoidica, leprosy, and tuberculosis. Dermal lymphocytic disorders include leukemia, lymphoma, lupus, and polymorphous light eruption, aka PMLE. Dermal neutrophilic disorders include sweet syndrome, pyoderma gangrenosum, and erythema elevatum diutinum, aka EED. Dermal eosinophilic disorders include Wells syndrome and eosinophilic pustular folliculitis. 
and lastly, dermal mast cell disorders would include urticaria pigmentosa. Dr. Gropper also includes subcutaneous paniculitis disorders such as erythema nodosum in the dermal reaction pattern as well, so keep that in mind. So if you're feeling overwhelmed and slightly bored, that's okay. I want to give you a brief exposure to all of the conditions that we'll be covering in the first several seasons of the podcast. This is nothing that you have to memorize now. I want to stress that. So let's go through one more reaction pattern before we get to our interview with Dr. Gropper. The fifth and final reaction pattern are the vesicobullous disorders, which describe rashes that blister. Dr. Gropper further categorizes them based on blister depth into superficial, intraepidermal, and subepidermal blisters. Superficial blistering disorders include subcorneal pustular dermatosis, aka Sneddon-Wilkinson disease. The intraepidermal blistering disorders include pemphigus vulgaris, pemphigus vegetans, pemphigus erythematosus, and benign familial chronic pemphigus, aka Haley-Haley disease. The subepidermal blistering disorders include bullous pemphigoid, herpes gestationis, dermatitis herpetiformis, epidermolysis bullosa acquisita, aka EBA, Derriere's disease, and Grover's disease, aka transient acantholytic dermatosis. Although all of these conditions are described in the bullous reaction patterns, many conditions such as dermatitis herpetiformis will often present without blisters but instead with the remnants of them. We'll give you some pearls on recognizing the disorders when we cover them in one of the later seasons of the podcast. Okay, now let's get to the fun stuff. I am very honored and thankful that Dr. Gropper is joining us to give us some wisdom on these reaction patterns. As a brief introduction, Dr. Gropper received his bachelor degree with honors at Brown University prior to getting his MD at the University of Pennsylvania, where he served as class president. He went on to do his internship at Mount Sinai in New York and completed his dermatology residency at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. He then performed a fellowship in dermatopharmacology at New York University. He has since served as the director of dermatology at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx for the past 25 years. He has received numerous awards for his teaching abilities in volunteerism, along with repeatedly being recognized by the New York Times as one of the super doctors for dermatology. He has a long, long list of publications in the major dermatology journals and textbooks, and today we are lucky enough to have him join us to discuss just one of those papers, an approach to clinical dermatologic diagnosis based on morphologic reaction patterns. So without further ado, let's talk to the man of the hour, Dr. Gropper. Thanks so much for joining us. We started off the episode with some background on the reaction patterns, so everyone is aware of what's in your paper, but I wanted to ask you, what inspired you to write the paper itself? Well, I was a dermatology resident at Albert Einstein in, you know, in the Bronx here in New York, and um, I, at that program, the system of reaction patterns uh, is heavily emphasized. You know, as Dr. Christopher Murthy, who was a faculty member there for several years after residency, will tell you, it, it almost a religious dogma at Einstein. And I want to emphasize that, you know, this is not something that I created. This is something I was taught as a resident. The, the primary person teaching at Einstein in my day was Michael Fisher, who's actually still at Einstein. And, um, you know, who I think learned it originally at Mass General when he was a resident. And he was the one who was the chairman, program director when I was a resident, and who emphasized the system. The the origins of me uh, writing it up, and, and again, I think I've, I've gotten credit for it when really this is just something I learned from Dr. Fisher and learned at Einstein, uh, was, uh, has my origins. I was a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And the way I actually ended up in dermatology uh, was uh, I was a medical student, a third-year medical student at the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania, commonly known as HUP. And my supervising intern was Guy Webster, 
was an MD PhD who had gotten those things at Penn and was had already made a name for himself in dermatology even during medical school during research and he became really the person who helped me get into dermatology and guided me in and was my mentor and he called up about the year 2000 and said well he's doing this thing called clinical cornerstone and is there something I'd like to write up of, of clinical interest and I said well you know how about this I don't the system of clinical diagnosis is something that we use a lot some of the New York programs use it it's especially used at Einstein and uh, but would you write it up? So I wrote it up, and I didn't think much about it. It just seemed like a useful thing, and somehow it really became a, a, a uh, something I became known for, even though it really was just an afterthought to do it. And and so those are the origins. My my chairman at Einstein when I was training, Dr. Michael Fisher, who really was the one who was the one who introduced me to all this, and uh, Guy Webster, who's uh, uh, in, still in the Philadelphia Delaware area, who's a prominent dermatologist and teacher and lecturer, and he was the one who invited me to write this, write it up, and that's how I ended up with it, my name on it. That's awesome. I can definitely attest to how helpful it's been to learn these reaction patterns from Dr. Krishnamurthy here at our residency in Jacksonville. Uh, we'll put up a codachrome, describe the rash or lesion, and then we typically start out our differential by saying, you know, what reaction pattern are we in? So it has been helpful to learn this approach in training, uh, but I wanted to ask you, currently in your everyday practice, uh, how often do you go back to these reaction patterns when you're seeing your patients? Well, since I still work with residents a lot of the week, I mean, we, we use it, especially in, in the teaching uh, environment. Um, this morning we were at Grand Rounds and case was presented and it was quite useful. Um, you know, in, I think in clinical practice after a while, you start to get into the, the mode of uh, with a lot of things. You kind of walk in the room and, and, you know, you look at them and you kind of know what they are. However, um, you know, with things that are more rare, more unusual, um, this process can be helpful, um, you know, to really think about, I think it probably, you internalize it after all these years and it happens kind of instantly and automatically. But uh, so certainly in the teaching environment, we use it all the time uh, to help think about things, think about clinical diagnoses. And I, I think one of the, the nice things is that dermatology is in this high tech age is something where clinical diagnosis really still has a role. And even if we ultimately just biopsy things to get more information, it's still quite helpful to organize our thinking along these lines. Absolutely. Uh, for medical students or residents going into dermatology or even for providers in primary care, uh, seeing rashes can be very intimidating and challenging. Uh, so I also wanted to ask you too, with all your years of experience, how long did it take you to get really confident with diagnosing rashes? Like you said, you can walk into a room and get a good idea of what something is. And also, is there anything outside of these reaction patterns that you would suggest to students or residents to help them get more comfort with diagnosing rashes, like seeing more codachromes, or are there any other resources that you like? I, I think there's some famous articles saying you need to spend something like 10,000 hours on a uh, on something to be gain expertise at it. So I, I, I think that, that that was some sort of psychological study, and I think that wasn't in any way particular to dermatology. It was about all, all human tasks that are complex and require years of training, you know, whether in, in music and in athletics and, you know, whatever, in technical areas and of skill. So, I, you know, I, I think that there isn't a, sp a specific number. And I think the other thing is, you know, we're always still learning. Uh, you know, so th if anything, I think the, the most important thing is to consider yourself always somebody who's still learning because there are still every week things that come up that I'm not sure about, the residents aren't sure about, other people aren't sure about, which is why it's nice to be part of an academic program where you have a chance to discuss things and consider that, you know, there's always more things to learn 
Um, so in terms of advice, uh, you know, I, I think programs are quite good these days. They're, they're, they're well organized. They, their goals are well organized. Uh, but, you know, there's really no replacement for just clinical experience of seeing patients, having the chance to learn from experience, from seeing what things turn out to be, from correlating clinical impression with pathology results, things of that sort. Mm-hmm. For sure. I remember starting out in our residency, working with Dr. K in clinic, and he'd be able to look at a rash and say, this is what it's going to show on path, but you know, we got to biopsy it. And then the results would come back and correlate, like you said. And I always thought that was so impressive. Uh, but like you said, it comes with experience. I couldn't imagine myself ever doing that. But after being in residency for a year and a half now, I occasionally have my moments where I can guess the path. And it's always kind of fun when it comes back and it agrees with what you were thinking. Um, but getting back to the reaction patterns a bit, if you were to rewrite the paper today, is there anything that you would add or tweak to the content? No, that's, it's, it's a very, um, very good question. Um, you know, the reaction patterns really focus on inflammatory, uh, things. Um, a few of which are neoplastic, but most, most of which are inflammatory, infectious, uh, vascular, blistering, autoimmune, um, it would be sort of interesting to consider an extra reaction pattern of neoplastic, you know, which, yeah. which is not considered specifically one of the five inflammatory reaction patterns, but really to, to put a, you know, have reaction patterns, if you will, in, in the differential diagnosis of neoplasms. And then I think another interesting thing would be to consider how dermoscopy might play a role in all this. When I was yeah. a resident, dermoscopy wasn't in use. Uh, it was just starting to be mentioned a little bit by people like Al, Al Kaff at NYU and other places. And now it's really become a standard thing. So it'd be interesting to correlate reaction patterns with dermoscopy. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, maybe something we can even add into the podcast, although probably difficult with the dermoscopy since it's such a visual thing. But um, also I wanted to say that something that comes up in our Kodachrome sessions are rashes that can fit into multiple reaction patterns. Maybe something like erythema annulare centrifugum being papulosquamous, but also being in the figure eight erythema uh, subcategory of the vascular reaction pattern. So are there any other rashes or lesions in particular that you put into multiple categories? Yeah, there are a lot of examples of that. And, um, you know, for example, mycosis fungoides is, is papulosquamous, but it's really also a cellular infiltrate, so it might belong in dermal. Uh, you know, or you might have something like uh, pleva, which is, I guess, vascular, but it's also really dermal and even has components of blistering. So there, there are a lot of sweet syndrome is the one I always often bring up as the best example of something that crosses reaction patterns and it's something that evolves and it's, it appears vesicobullous, but it actually is more dermal, uh, cellular infiltrate, but it really looks vascular as well. So yeah, yeah, the, the whole uh, issue of reaction patterns is, is about how to think logically about something when you need a framework for something that, that's really an unknown. And it, it's really not meant to be, uh, it, it's not unusual for things to cross reaction patterns or for something you're looking at to be potentially part of several reaction patterns and to need clarification through biopsy or watching the clinical progress. Yeah, exactly. Um, so final question for you. After practicing derm for all of these years up in New York, do you have any words of wisdom for medical students trying to get into dermatology residency or for derm residents who are on their way? Or do you really have anything else that you want to kind of get off your chest to the dermatology community before we wrap things up? 
Well, I, I mean, being a dermatologist is a great thing, and it's a great privilege. I, you know, I, there was an old joke that there were two kinds of doctors, you know, derm, dermatologists and, and doctors who wish they'd gone into dermatology. And even if that's not exactly true, and dermatology is a great field um, in terms of our ability to, you know, have a field that really helps people. It's a, a field that's very concrete, I mean, you, where you can really fix things. People come in with a, you know, an irritated, whatever growth. You remove it, you diagnose it, and they're very happy. And you know, there are other, there are various other specialties in medicine that do very, very important and needed and worthy things, but uh, have uh, unfortunately less of a capacity to um, fix things that they have solutions or treatments that work and. So, you know, it's very gratifying to be in dermatology where it's, it's something you can really uh, fix things, deal in concrete things, deal in things which are both medical and surgical. I'm not inclined towards cosmetic things very much, but that exists as a large portion of, of uh, dermatology these days. So, um, you know, it's just a great field and a still growing field. Um, so that's one thing to note. Um, in terms of getting in, um, you know, like anything else it's very, that's very competitive to do, the most important thing is persistence and determination. And it's probably true of anything in life that's difficult and hard to attain. It's, you know, for those who don't succeed at first, it's a matter of really being persistent. And you know, I know people who have taken many, many years of fellowships and research and effort to get in. And there's somebody I'm thinking of at this moment as I speak, who I, I won't name this person, but I'm thinking of somebody who's really having a very spectacular career who took a great deal of time to uh, actually be able to enter the field. So persistence and determination are very, very important. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It can uh, definitely be kind of scary applying for such a competitive residency, but I would always try to remind myself that, you know, hey, somebody's got to get in. Why not me kind of a thing? Uh, you just have to keep working at it, like yeah. you said. So. Um, well, hey, Dr. Gropper, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us a bit about the reaction patterns, and we'll have to start working on a little neoplastic reaction pattern for the later seasons once we charge through the first five there in your paper. So just want to thank you again so much. We really appreciate you joining us. It's my uh, pleasure and honor, and uh, best of luck in everything you're doing. Thanks again. You too. All right. Thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.